Welcome to the Determined Mom Show, the only marketing podcast dedicated to guiding mom CEOs into tranquility, wealth, and multiplying those precious moments. This episode is the first episode in a three-part series with Dr. Kimya Nuru-Dennis. She is a community advocate, sociologist, and criminologist, educator, and researcher. Dr. Dennis connects with local, national, and international communities, schools, businesses, and organizations. She was born and raised in the city of Richmond, Virginia, and Dr. Dennis lived in North Carolina for 17 years and now lives in Baltimore, Maryland. 365 Diversity is her company, and it helps to change policies and actions, curriculum, and class materials for K through 12 schools and colleges and universities. This includes changing academic programs, career training, and policies and evaluations for medical and health schools, medical and health organizations, and also medical and health facilities. Please visit 365 Diversity to learn more about her work. I invite you to pause and evaluate and see if there's anything in your life that you feel that you're not doing that you should be doing in order to help to change these traditions, American traditions, worldwide traditions that we're talking about in these episodes. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to this episode of the Determined Mom Show. I have with me the amazing Dr. Kimia Nuru-Dennis, and she is the founder and CEO of 365 Diversity. Today, we are going to talk about some amazing things. So welcome. Thank you for welcoming me. And we already had a really good conversation. We were like, oh, we should have started recording. I know we totally, I totally should have recorded that because it was really, really good. So I remember it but I really wish that the audience could have heard it too. Yeah, we can just give the audience a refresher of what we discussed and that'll be helpful to them as well. Yeah, definitely. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about why diversity, equity, and inclusion can be useless. So I know part of what we talked about, I think the the JR thing fits into this category. And then the other, the previous topic will fit into the next episode. So let's talk about why diversity, equity, inclusion can be useless. Yeah, most of it is useless. So most, when you see people using DEI, DNI acronyms and departments and official statements and trainings, they tend not to do their work based on what Black people in the United States of America have done for centuries. Like literally Black people have for centuries done work, done research, done writings, done poetry, artistry, and Indigenous people aligned with parts of that as well. Black people since 1960s, 1970s have done equity, race, racial equity trainings for white audiences before Black people could actually get paid to do that. Black people have created and taught courses. So I've taught race and ethnic relations for 15 years before, again, we were considered trendy, hot topics kind of things to have a whole entire career on that. Black people have, again, are the trailblazers when talking about sexuality, gender identity. That's something that's been done way before white middle-class, upper-class white women did women's suffrage, you know, women's liberation, white women's version of feminism. The first pride parades were led by particularly Black transgendered women. And so this is where we always have to highlight, and I always tell people, one of the models that I use for 365 diversity is discuss diversity daily and not your typical diversity training is the other model. And I use that because I tell people, I discuss these 
every day, everywhere I go. And people's outrage in response to what I say, whether it's race, ethnicity, religion, they get mad and I tell them you're mad now, but yet you pretend in two days that if you go to an anti-racism book club or an Mm -hmm. anti-racism training, that all of a sudden you're conscious and you're outraged on behalf of minoritized people. And situational consciousness, convenient awareness, and only being willing to make changes based on your permission means that nothing is changing. Like if you're mad at what I said about white power across every political affiliation around the world on on Friday, February 11th, you'll be mad even if you come to one of my trainings on Monday, February 14th. You'll be mad because, because it's Valentine's Day in general and because you expect it to be based on white people's comfort and permission. I will say things. And you'll be mad because you want it to be a very comfortable place. And I tell people, I'm saying it the same way I said on February 11th. Like there's no on and off switch when talking about this. And this uh, unfortunately is where I also have to hold white women accountable because we talk about school systems, which we'll talk about in a future session as well. White women and white men are in charge of K through 12 and colleges and universities on Western Hemisphere, Europe and parts of the world. And a lot of times white women understand when we're talking about gender equity work that Mm -hmm. makes men uncomfortable and especially cisgender men, they understand that discomfort. They understand this notion of outrage and burning bras and it's okay if you piss off the oppressor, right? But when it comes to race, white women are the highest paid anti-racism and DEI trainers, directors of DEI offices, in charge of DEI committees and bestseller books because white women know how to use that white power, white outrage, and pretend that gender identity and sexuality buffers white power. White power is never buffered, ever. It's never buffered, it's never reduced. And so this is why it's very important for people to to understand it. It can't be convenient, it can't be situational, it can't be based on a New York Times bestseller, because again, New York Times bestsellers are, are still based on white people being the biggest consumers. So all of that is still the same routine of minoritized people only being free if given oppression permission. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Given permission, then it's you're you're basically asking, you know, you think of Oliver Twist, who says, please, sir, can I have some more? Right. That's not freedom. That's not liberation. That's asking for a little bit. And then that's constantly asking, knowing that the people in power can take it back when they see fit. So that's not dismantling oppressions. Right. And I think this kind of leads into our conversation that we had before, but we tend to not even realize the ways that we're contributing to those things continuing. And one of those is by a buying that book that you were just talking about, you know, and I'm sure you have a whole list of other ones, but just even paying attention to those people that are kind of just giving them that platform. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what we were Mm -hmm. talking about earlier with uh, the situation with Whoopi Goldberg and Joe Rogan and all of those things that are happening right now in February right now. And so what are some other platforms before we get into that? What are some other ways that we, and I'm speaking for myself and my quote unquote people, because I'm white and I want to know if there are any other ways that we can demonstrate that we're contributing to those things without knowing it. Yeah, I would would always say that people always know when they're Mm. contributing, which includes contributing through politeness. Mm. Because 
being smiley and polite, it, it, now it means your emotions matter the most, right? And I explain this a lot because I just think of many instances such as now we can still access the postcards of Black people being hanged from trees and white people posing eating watermelon and, you know, first of all, watermelon does not originate in USA, but, you know, these ideas are that if white people smile around us, if white people use a polite voice, we're supposed to not notice that the school curriculum in literally every K through 12 and college university, including in terminal degrees, medical degrees around the world, are controlled by European white. And I tell people this, that's why I talk about white history, white mathematics, white sciences including when forms of Asian sciences are incorporated. The idea is that you're supposed to think that white people and especially white men with coalition and collaboration with white women are the main founders, the main developers. And despite hundreds of thousands of years of all this knowledge being known, it doesn't have value unless discovered and considered worthwhile by white people. That's and, crazy, wouldn't you? Yeah. And for teachers, uh, you know, I used to teach undergraduate students and students in teacher master's degrees who, unfortunately, I was oftentimes either their first Black teacher, first Black professor, or the first person who told them what you were taught in this education program sucks. You know, they were very comfortable because they were like, they had their teacher certification, they had their full-time teaching job. And I said, that's the same problem in K through 12 as it is in colleges and universities where you know a certain narrow scope of knowledge based on a demographic cultural power majority that are the determinants of intellect and you decide that that is the expertise mm -hmm. and then when challenged regarding that and this happened when I was still faculty in North Carolina as well when challenged regarding that people get uncomfortable because now they have to challenge their internal self and question why they felt so accomplished when they weren't oftentimes even learning about their own people's knowledge accomplishments like Indigenous people, if you're not learning Indigenous history, Indigenous sciences, Indigenous mathematics, including the books that you find in some places, including free online, you have to question why are you furthering that by teaching that to every generation? And now people are like, well, well, I do hashtags, I do book clubs, I do a new book in my class. But again, I tell them, being in charge of changing curriculum means you have to get past your one book list. You have to get past that one class. Because if you're changing the outcomes for your students in one class, but you're still having lunch with the horrible teachers every day, knowing good and well that their curriculum sucks yep. and they're complying with the horrible accreditation policies and they're accomplishing nothing in progress, they're complying with the library's policies, the superintendent's policies. How can you all be friends? Mm, that's a good one. You know, how can you but, be yeah, friends? I agree. PD together, you smile at each other, sit beside each other at a PD, and everyone's like, yeah, I learned so much, but you know that it's going to be the same nonsense. Y'all are grown. Why are y'all acting like this is kindergarten on the playground? Y'all are grown, but then you want people to celebrate teachers. You want people to defend teachers during COVID, but a lot of teachers have not been outraged about anything until COVID. Maybe yeah. they wanted like a teacher's union to talk about salary, mm -hmm. but it is very rare in every school district across the nation to find teachers who've been outraged about the actual curriculum. Even yeah. when families and communities did protests and went to school boards, the teachers were always like, you know, you better appreciate and respect how I do. So yeah. now we're supposed to ignore that for centuries 
and pretend that teachers have now acknowledged centuries of oppression. So with the work that I do for 365 Diversity, I tell people to demand changes. You have to understand this is not about a book club. This is not about New York Times bestseller. This is not about celebrating those famous DEI trainers who are getting paid $30,000 for nothingness. This is about what are you changing? And if you're not willing to risk parts of your life that could be your family not getting along, your friendship circle changing, your career changing, because now you've actually got deal breakers of what your employer is doing. Like you're mad at the government, but you got to be honest about how your school is complying to the government. You're mad at your medical facility where you work, but you got to be understanding of how your medical facility has perpetuated five centuries of medical racism and laboratory experiments as well. You can't choose to lack peripheral vision and, and consciousness. It's in everything. It's in everything that we do. There has to be that choice. And it really is, mm -hmm. I feel like a choice. Like you either go this way or you go that way. And there is that thought process that goes into it. You have to stop yourself and say, okay, what am I doing? Like, why am I doing it this way when I should be doing it this way when I know in my heart that this is the way that is right. And yeah, and people have to do their part that's reasonable in their lifetime. So it's just like when we're talking about like anti-capitalism. Capitalism is about exploitative labor and harming people. It doesn't mean that you can't have a business. It doesn't mean you can't profit. People assume that being against capitalism means you're against wealth building. Mm -hmm. I always have to explain this to people. Dismantling oppression and exploitative labor does not mean that you can't build profit. Because pretending they have to go together implies that every employer around the world is harming somebody, which is false, right? Yep. And building wealth does not mean you have to be a millionaire either. There's different kinds of wealth. And so this is where a lot of adults, how they express their outrage when we talk about equity. Actually, I tell people it, it takes your entire life to insult me because I'm not insulted no matter mm -hmm. What people do when they create anonymous email addresses and block their number to send harassment, it never insults me. It's literally five centuries of data. It's a social experiment to show that people are angry because they themselves don't know much. They haven't read much beyond what they've seen on in their schools, on social media, and they want to not be held accountable for not knowing. But then they want to claim that they're teaching generations like you don't know. Not you, but you know, people don't know, mm -hmm. but then they're teaching falsehoods in schools. And, and so that's the problem that's just ongoing. So that's why I tell people my work is unapologetic, just as black work has been for centuries, based in hundreds of thousands of years of black knowledges that have been shaped, of course, through being enslaved. And so that's the work. It's not comfortable. It's not just based on white outrage, like, you know, white people still talking about the whole January 6, 2020 thing. What, mm -hmm. 2021? I tell people your outrage can't just be based on something that's more like violently overt like that. It has to be like there's stuff happening literally every day and it can't just be based on something that that's now the popular topic to discuss. So let's go back to what we were talking about before. And I had brought up that we kind of sat our children down and, and explained to them because our family is generally a very heavy Spotify use family. We get in the car and we put it on to go to my mom's house and we have like a playlist of everyone's favorite songs and all that stuff. So we sat down with our oldest two daughters who are nine and 11, and we explained the entire um, situation with Joe Rogan, you know, his comments and all of those things. And we gave them that decision of whether or not 
they wanted to continue using it or if they wanted to not use it. And also, we also put in their hands the decision of whether or not my podcast should stay on Spotify. So the unanimous decision was instantly nope, we're not using it anymore. I was actually kind of interested to see what was going to happen because, you know, they're kids, they're nine, they're 11, they love music, they love all of those things. And I was really curious to see where that pull was, but it was, there was no pull from the other side. So I think it's interesting to talk about that and talk about why it's important to stand up for not allowing those things on platforms that we participate in. It's very common as Black people who do this work, which again, Black people have done this work for centuries and literally taught courses about this, done trainings for generations. It's often the case where Black people in particular will try to not even mention white people because we know the moment we say white, uh, white people, including white liberals, white Democrats, white progressives, all of them will all of a sudden there's outrage because they're offended that we don't use abstract, vague terminology. So a lot of Black people have tried to not talk about white people at all. However, we learn that when we don't specify white people, it actually perpetuates what sociologists term colorblind racism. So one of the more popular sociology textbooks, uh, not textbooks, excuse me, but Dr. Eduardo Bonilla Silver's book, Racism Without Racists. You can find the one of the older editions for free online and, and download the PDF. And it addresses white people and white accommodating people. So people who can pass for white or or be considered white accommodating. What it means where people pretend to be race neutral, people pretend that problems are not so much about race, mm-hmm. but they're about class. They're I don't see color. Gender. That's my favorite one that yeah. everyone in my family and friend, yep. well, former friends group likes to use. Yeah, I don't see color, which is insulting because it's usually white people who say that, but it's also ethnicities and cultures around the world who have had to accommodate white dominant societies, spaces, schools, employers. And they've had to subscribe to this falsehood that we all are just blank slates. We're like robots with no cultures. And I tell people, you would be offended if someone said they don't see your gender. Like if you tell a man, I don't see your manhood, you might get cussed out, right? Because that's an insult because he would feel like, especially cisgender men would feel like they're being minimized, that now they're going to be treated as quote unquote girly. That's how they're, they become very anti-women in how they try to reiterate their manhood, right? Yeah. So for most other identities, whether it's religion or anything else, people can grasp how we don't have to pretend neutrality. We can acknowledge, understand, learn about various differences and similarities across humans for hundreds of thousands of years around the world. It's when we talk about five centuries of racial categorizations that were created by white people for the purpose of putting hundreds of thousands of years of people in the categories for trading, for capitalism, for enslavement. That's when people, and particularly white people, and it also connects with colorism, so also light melanin people. That's when people say, well, Let's talk about class issues. Let's talk about socioeconomic status. The problem is political parties. It doesn't vary by race. Everything varies by race, just like everything varies by gender. Everything varies by sexuality, including when talking about health conditions, including when talking about genetic links with health conditions, including reading abilities, school curriculum. Everything varies by race, just like everything varies by everything else. And it's called on racism when white people in particular try to lead this off by saying no. And they call us racist because... Mm -hmm. 
first of all, there's no such thing as racism against white people. There's no such thing as reverse racism. It was in the 1980s when you go, when you watch old episodes of Phil Donahue's show, that Phil Donahue allowed white people to declare white people as oppressed. So that's mm-hmm. back in the 80s on Gerardo Rivera's show as well. You would see these shows had this hot topic of angry white people who mm-hmm. want to declare themselves racially oppressed. And that's why I tell people, sociologists, particularly Black sociologists, Indigenous sociologists, we don't use the European white dictionary definitions and thesaurus terminology to define racism. A lot of times when people try to challenge us, they're like, well, Webster says, and I say that's not an an analysis. That's not a power-based analysis. That is instead saying just because a white person is offended, they are pretending to be oppressed. That is saying that just because a white person is not included in everything, like a white person is not hired by every job application, a white person is not brought into every school based on the college application, that's saying, oh, it's because I'm white. And reverse racism also became popular phrase during the 80s because of affirmative action claims. And so white women are the biggest benefactors of affirmative action since the 1980s. But the idea that white people had was that affirmative action is an example of racism against white people. It's this, again, this notion that white people created everything that's worthwhile and white people therefore control everything. So if anyone's familiar with Dr. Jidra Royster, who is a Black woman who's biracial, Black and white, sociologist, she wrote the book, Race and the Invisible Hand, in which she specifically was examining Black men as compared to white men in this working class workforce. The outrage that these white men had, where they felt that having more and more Black men in their workforce competing against them meant that now white men were being omitted from something that belonged to them. The fact that this land is stolen. Exactly. This land became USA because of terrorism. We are here. I'm not here on a cruise ship or an airplane. We're here because we're descendants of enslaved Africans in US in what became USA, Canada, South America, Caribbean, right? Yep. We built this land. We built colleges and universities. We built this industrial revolution and all that stuff. Deidre Royster, Dr. Deidre Royster explains that. What does it mean when white people perceive that threat to their power and they want to declare, therefore, themselves being oppressed and removed from something that should be theirs unless they give us permission to take it? That is so powerful. The whole affirmative action thing, I remember all the way back when I was, I was like, you know, probably maybe eight or nine or something when that became a hot topic. But I remember, of course, my family is intrinsically racist. So they were all up in arms about it. And like, well, this affirmative action thing, you know, and like, just, I just remember all of that and exactly what you're saying about any, I feel like any type of anything, whether it be athletics, whether it be anything, any type of anything that two men can do that white men have that supreme inferiority complex that they twist into a superiority complex, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. And you can think about that in terms of sports since the horrible Super Bowl is coming up, right? (laughs) Yeah. I don't watch that nonsense. And remember when we talk about the origins of the NBA and the NFL, these used to be a bunch of white men, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Just like when we talk about, I used to tutor black men football players and these universities across the nation intentionally market by going to mostly poor black schools, particularly in Florida and Texas, where they have particularly black boys, but also black girls who oftentimes will be struggling 
in terms of reading, in terms of comprehension. And we're talking about standardized tests that are not culturally conscious in the first place. And so schools realize that they will benefit from Black children who feel like they won't be able to go to school unless they become an athlete. So when I became their tutor, it was interesting because a lot of these students have been taught all their lives that all they know how to do is throw the pigskin. And here I am as a Black woman who specialize in not just tutoring them for that class, but as a sociologist and criminologist with a background in criminal quote-unquote justice, I tell them, I'm getting you prepared for life choices. Meaning, I don't want you being tortured, hurting your body, hurting your brain, being a different form of enslavement mm -hmm. of Black men. A pawn, really. Trade. Yeah. About that trade and how that happens. Yeah. Yes, they can become millionaires in the NFL, but I don't have any respect for that either. Mm -hmm. And I tell them instead, I'm going to get you ready to do well academically, career-wise. And so thankfully, some of the students keep up with me. Most did not go to the NFL, thankfully, or the NBA yeah. for those who were basketball players. Some of them became school teachers. Some went to graduate school, law school. They started to learn after being outraged that I was actually forcing them to learn some stuff. Yeah. That that as Black people, we have five centuries of having to be compliant. It's a different form of enslavement. So when you look at how the NBA NFL went from being a bunch of white men to being mostly Black, mm -hmm. that also came with white people's outrage. On one side, white people are like, why do I now have to see a bunch of Black men, right? Then when people learned that actually the NFL and NBA make more money by forcing Black men to do all this work than they made when it was white men, then that's it. So I tell people, you know, I grew up watching the NBA back when it was, you know, Larry Bird, Danny Ainge for three, Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, yeah. my favorite players. Yep. Um, and so like Dominique Wilkins, like the slam dunk contests and all that. But that's before that true transition happened to what the NBA. NBA represented, and then the wealth of NBA owners and players changed. So a lot of times when people understand what I explain in terms of a sports way, I'm like, okay, now, now apply that to your school district and notice the salary increase of the decision makers, school superintendents. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, people in the communities need to ask for an audit. Where is this money being spent? Because it's definitely not changing the accreditation for the good good way. Mm -hmm. It's not changing standardized tests. The book publishers that you're using are still very white dominant and telling you falsehoods regarding history. If people can understand when I use sports as an example, they should understand when we're talking about music. Like I'm, my brothers and I are products of predominantly Black Richmond public schools, 80s and 90s. What does it mean when you're teaching classrooms of entirely Black children? Things like Robert Frost and the prologue of Canterbury Tales. <laughs> it's cool for us to learn this European stuff, but we're a bunch of Black children. Yeah. Why should I not come out of this knowing about Langston Hughes, mm -hmm. James Baldwin, Audre Lorde? I mean, we have five centuries of Black poets on Western Hemisphere alone and hundreds of thousands of years around the world. I'm a classically trained harpist and pianist, and it was a Black woman harpist who actually got a black girl harp group together oh, that's because awesome. she wanted to counter, she wanted to teach us about the origins of black harpists around the world. Mm -hmm. But it took her doing that because she knew that we were not 
taught about the history of Black people before enslavement. So basically, we were defined only through oppression. Therefore, and it still unfortunately happens where you talk about Black people, uh-oh, let's talk about slavery, let's talk about mm-hmm. being lynched, let's talk about Jim Crow, let's talk about oppression, incarceration, athleticism, but not about sciences, mathematics, about laboratories, universities. These yeah. are not ex- These are not created by white people. So that's why I just explained to people, if you understand the problem with how the sports industry is done, understand the problem with the music industry, Uh understand the problem with the school industry and schools are an industry, including K through 12 public schools. These problems are literally the same everywhere. They just look different, but it's the same underlying issues, including capitalism. But capitalism always requires racism, ableism, sexism, heterocentrism, you know, cisgenderism, homophobia, transphobia, all of those are also interlocked with capitalism. This is so amazing. I'm very interested to learn why, in general, it seems that our society as a whole, as a majority, thinks it's okay to cancel Whoopi but it's not okay to cancel Joe Rogan. Yep. So that's five centuries of white dominance around the world, right? The world is about 12% white, but yet controlled by white people, including in nations where there are no white people, except when you're looking at the publishers and so forth, right? So that is the core of anti-Blackness and racism. Again, we have five centuries of Black people being told to forgive white people, to explain to white people, to teach white people. Black people have done generations of racial justice trainings and presentations. We've taught about this in classrooms. No matter what white people say and do to us, they can get us terminated from jobs. They can get us murdered. They can be police officers killing us. We're supposed to still say, well, change takes time. Mm-hmm. Vote die, right? Black people, we are five centuries of being told, including by other Black people, that we have to be patient, no matter how much we're tormented, no matter how much white version of everything we learn in schools, no matter how much we are even murdered, harassed, patrolled by police. We, as Black people, are the ones who are exposed to smile, keep working hard. Uh, and, And when we look at the history of Negro spirituals, We have Negro spirituals that have a core of sending different messages on how to escape enslavement. But we also unfortunately have Negro spirituals or Black spirituals about keeping your hand on the plow or eyes on the prize. The idea is that we're here on earth, but we'll be rescued in the afterlife. As long as Black people remain focused on the goal. And so... Whoopi Goldberg is an example of that. Um, Anti-Semitism is the label declared for whenever Black people hold white Jews accountable. Because white Jews ignore the origins of Judaism, which includes Jesus not being white. Yep. Which, you know, because this is where I always compare white Judaism to white Anglo-Saxon Protestantism, because they oftentimes use the same images of Jesus. Tall, slender, very pale white man, Mm -hmm. long hair. Oftentimes the fanciness of blue eyes, it's so awesome. Not the actual Jesus that uh, historical (laughs) accounts depict. So yeah, so Whoopi Goldberg said something that's not accurate. Nazi Germany, Adolf Hitler, what they did was based on genocide, ethnic cleansing, and the notion of quote unquote real whiteness pure whiteness, which is also why Adolf Hitler, Nazi Germany, focused on reproducing pure white babies. Basically laboratories where they just kept reproducing pure white babies, right? The paler, the better, the bluer the eyes, the list goes on. And and that's the genocide, of course, even before the unfortunate Holocaust of 
sending people to camps and starving to death and burning people to death. Mm -hmm. Before that, it was other ways to prove that these are not pure white people. We're going to control and torture you. And of course, some Jews in Germany proved to the Nazis that, yes, I'm Jewish, but I'm white just like you. And unfortunately, they had friendships with Nazis. That's an unfortunate example of how we tell people, if you are minoritized within this group and you are trying to impress the oppressors, just realize that while you watch your own people getting murdered, controlled, tortured, the oppressors will turn on you and remind you to stay in your place and they might murder you as well, which happened to a lot of Jews during that time. So Whoopi Goldberg said was false. It is true that Adolf Hitler, Nazi Germany were doing this notion of Aryan blood. There's no such thing as Aryan, of course. There's no such thing as Anglo-Saxon. When we use that terminology, it doesn't mean it's historically factual. It means that that's the core of five centuries of white dominance. And it's how like the Irish, the Jews assimilated intentionally into racial whiteness. Also, what Whoopi Goldberg said is accurate in terms of how most white Jews tend to depict Nazi Germany and depict the Holocaust, including when you're in synagogues, including when you go to Holocaust museums. They oftentimes do not highlight the role of race, like they might mention something that they were not considered pure whiteness, but they don't then have a discussion of how white Jews are not race neutral. And I'm saying this as someone who I specialize, you know, I have family who are black Jews and I always have to specify black Jews because when I say I have a Jewish family, people think I'm biracial, black and white. Because mm -hmm. unfortunately, most people, especially in European white parts of the world, including America and Canada, they can't fathom Judaism that's not a bunch of white people. Like even when they see traditional forms of Judaism with the images in New York of the men with long beards and so forth, yeah. these are depicted as very light melanin, very white passing if possible. Yep. And they don't think about the darker Jews, Middle Eastern Jews, Ethiopian Jews who are also in synagogues. Thankfully, some synagogues in the past 20 years have started doing racial justice trainings to challenge white Jews, but many white Jews are offended by that. What they'll say is Judaism is Judaism. Same thing Christians say also. White Christians ignore the origins of white Anglo-Saxon Protestantism that falsely threw around King James Version of the Bible around the world, including on the continent of Africa, and that's the foundation of, of slavery as well. Uh, a lot of Christ white Christians will say Christianity is not varied by religion, but of course right. it does. It does. Even yeah. multi multicultural, multiracial churches are very white-based, including in the version of Black gospel that they use. We're told to surpass race by focusing on God, but I always mm -hmm. tell people that religion is the same kind of institution as schools. Mm -hmm. It's the same kind of institution as police and law enforcement agencies, government entities. When they say religious institutions are protected from tax paying and all that, this is a deliberate, you know, step. It's not just spirituality and faith-based, it's actually formal institutions and organizations with decision makers, people building in money. So therefore, as with everything else, it varies by race. Yeah. Same way, it varies by gender. You're more likely to find synagogues, mosques, churches led by cisgender heterosexual men. Yeah, definitely. A hundred percent. Yeah. So what Whoopi Goldberg said was not accurate. However, what she said is accurate in terms of how most white Jews depict the Holocaust. Although they might say that this was a form of racial ethnic cleansing, they oftentimes don't admit they themselves are racially white and their synagogue is almost entirely a bunch of white people who are Jewish. When you look at 
Jewish organizations, Jewish nonprofits, it's mostly white Jews. Rarely will you find Ethiopian Jews, Middle Eastern Jews, and the list goes on. Because mostly Middle Eastern Ethiopian Jews understand that this synagogue is really not for us. This nonprofit is not for us. You can go on the website and see a bunch of white people who are Jewish yeah. sitting at each other, right? So what Whoopi Goldberg said is false in terms of Holocaust was about race. What Whoopi Goldberg said was accurate in terms of the colorblind racism that's also perpetuated by white Jews. So what Whoopi Goldberg said was not anti-Semitic. And this is another example of reverse racism. When white Jews claim that everything is anti-Semitic, it's the same thing as white people claiming everything is reverse racism or racism against white people. White Jews have a tendency when offended by something that black people say, which goes also far back to Dr. W.B. Du Bois's words regarding Judaism, that we're being anti-Semitic, mm -hmm. which is interesting because what Black people say about Judaism as a religion, as institution, pertains to Black Jews, pertains to Middle Eastern Jews. It's not anti-Semitic if we're talking about racial variants and racial inequities within Judaism. So when white people are mad at Whoopi Goldberg, it's the same routine. We're expected to forgive white people for centuries for everything white people do, including if white people do a harmful surgery in a medical facility and we die because as Black people, we're expected to have a high pain threshold. Right. We're supposed to forgive that, right? Of course. <laughs> but instead of white people learning what Whoopi Goldberg was saying, learning, which means Black people have written about this for centuries. Like, it's not in their bookstore. It's not in white people's bookstores and on their bestseller list, but Black people have explained this. So this is an example that Whoopi Goldberg got punished. That's not shocking because that's how white people respond to, particularly Black people. Yeah. That's how white Jews respond. Black Jews, you know, Middle Eastern Jews, pretty much understood what Whoopi Goldberg was saying. You know, they might've been like, what you said was false. You shouldn't have said it, but they pretty much probably did not declare anti-Semitic. The anti-Semitic declaration is because of the interlocking whiteness and Judaism. You know, this, the centuries of white Jews accommodating whiteness and eventually assimilating into whiteness, the same as the Irish who became white after being indentured servants. They claimed they were enslaved during transatlantic slavery, but they were not, they were indentured servants. And so I just also want to end by saying over the, over the decades, Whoopi Goldberg has also said that she herself subscribes to acts, aspects of Judaism. Yeah, it's obviously not anti-Semitic. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're punishing Whoopi Goldberg because they know that white outrage is the only outrage that matters. Mm -hmm. And it's white people of every political affiliation. White yeah. outrage is the only outrage that matters. Despite Black people being big consumers on social media and other media outlets, they know that white people are, uh, particularly white Jews, own big parts of ABC, other aspects of Hollywood. And so... News. <laughs> All of the news. Yeah. yeah. And so this is the factual reality of history and current facts, right? Mm -hmm. This is stuff that it doesn't matter what the textbooks say. It doesn't matter what people talk about when comfortable because they have to accommodate white people's feelings. This is factual what I'm saying. Unfortunately, predictably, a lot of white people will listen to what I'm saying, including white Jews, and they'll declare me as racist and declare me as anti-Semitic. And this is why I tell people racial justice never happens because we waste time accommodating white people's version of everything and only doing things based on what white people want to hear at any given moment. So those of us who don't accommodate that, those of us who speak factual, and this is Black people have done that for centuries, we're to blame despite that not being 
to blame. You know, it's like when we talk about men will blame women as hating men yeah. when women demand gender justice, right? Right. So it's the same kind of dynamic here, but it's it surpasses it regarding race. Because no matter the oppression, white people are the top of the umbrella, you Mm. know? So like Black LGBTQIA people, Indigenous, Asian, non-white Hispanic, non-white Latinx, LGBTQIA people oftentimes have difficulty with the same issue because it's like, here's this oppression, but then white people still say, okay, I'm oppressed like you are, but I'm still white. So same routine over and over again that pertains to Whoopi Goldberg. I love that analogy that you gave the umbrella and that white people are at the top because it's so true and we need to do better. We are the like distributors of all of that from this particular moment on just change things, not say or talk about it, but actually implementing that change is the most important part of it. Yeah. And change means that you can't expect that everyone's going to agree. You can't expect the power majorities to be happy. Again, like I tell people, you have to reevaluate your friendships, your family ties, your colleague ties, your workplace ties. People who know me know that there's not certain things that you're going to say and do around me. And I tell people that's fine if you no longer want to be associated with me. But what I do is I make sure you do not subscribe to things, express things and do things. And then say, I am Kenya's friend. Uh I'm Kenya's colleague. We learned this in Dr. Dennis's class. No, you did not. Yeah. Don't try to use me as an escape and excuse. Yeah. And so this is where I hold white people accountable, but I also hold every racial and ethnic group of people accountable because if anyone subscribes to white power for the purpose of keeping a job. Like a lot of people say, I can't challenge white people. I'll get fired. I say, I understand we all have bills to pay. And racial equity work does not pay your bills. Like I tell people, if you became wealthy by doing racial equity work, then you you're not doing racial equity work. Oppressors are never going to make you wealthy to reduce their power. That's just not how humans (laughs) operate, right? Like men are not going to say, I'm going to pay women to reduce power from men. They don't even get paid equally to do the same thing. So exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So like DEI trainings, all that stuff. It's, and this happens at universities, K through 12, everywhere. It's mostly white women who get paid the most. Mm -hmm. Black men are the second paid. So when talking about whether it's with Goldberg or anything else, it's just an example. Same thing happened on the show, The Talk with Sharon Osbourne. Sharon Osbourne did what white women have centuries of doing. It's when people turn around and say, wait a second, you pretend to be, you know, part of this coalition to make changes. But now we're putting it on you. Sharon Osborne thought that crying was going to change some things. And when that didn't work, Sharon Osborne got angry, right? And we're supposed to be like, okay, now Poor we're going to Poor Sharon. That's what really, we're supposed to say. Yeah, like it was literally centuries. Like when I watched that video, it's 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 not shocking. You start off crying and that doesn't work. Then you get mad and you're like, I blame all of you. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, come yeah. on now, Sharon Osborne, yeah. go sit down. I agree. You got to take that responsibility on yourself, when, especially when someone pointed out to you. I know that there's things in our family that happen. And my husband will be like, that felt like you were being racist to me, you know, because mm-hmm. we're in a interracial relationship and mm-hmm. that happens sometimes. And yeah. when he says something like that, I have to take it and I have to take it as a fact because it is a fact. And I have to change whatever it was that I did and understand why I'm changing it. That's the bigger factor. That's interesting. So I don't use individual level racism. So I don't call white people as individuals racist. Like when white people say and do things, I don't say you're racist Mm -hmm. because that's another distraction for centuries because the whole design is for us to spend our whole lives debating with white people as to whether they as an individual are racist. So this is something for you and your husband to think about. 
instead of that whole, well, that's racist thing, instead discuss, here's why what you did was problematic, not just based on personal opinion, but how it mm-hmm. has implications based on race right. and varying by race. And we and really do. A, like uh-huh. he does, he's a talker, so he gets way into all of that. So <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a good learning process, but then it's also, you have to also understand that being a talker in that regard is also exhausting, it is. right? Because it's like, you're this constant teacher and, you know, you can love your family, love your friends, but then you learn and you love your workplace, for example, but you learn that there are a lot of things that we have to ignore because as black people, we're depicted as, as angry. We're depicted as constantly thinking about this. Like we wake up in the morning, go to bed at night. We walk around looking at white people at the grocery store. Like you picked up broccoli. That's racist. Like that's (laughs) a false depiction of black people, right? Yeah. But no, literally for centuries, we have been taught by our families. We've been forced by white people to ignore 99% of things that white people say and do to us. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying this as a black woman with a PhD, who's been a professor for years, yeah. who's done community work for years, who's been on board of directors for mental health organizations, suicide, who all this stuff. Yeah. I've been called all types of racial slurs. I've had white people contact me to call me Dr. N-I-G-G-E-R. I've had white people uh, in my classes file complaints. I've had white colleagues say things. Literally, if we, if Black people paid attention to even half of what white people mm-hmm. do to us from childhood, then we would just be mentally unstable. Exactly. We would not be able to have jobs. Yeah. It's impossible to have a career. It's impossible to get through schools, even at HBCUs and indigenous schools. Those are white control. Those are white people's funds. Like I always tell people, indigenous schools, HBCUs are controlled by white people, just like women's colleges are controlled by men. Yeah, so, that's so true. I definitely, I know that for our relationship dynamic, he knows that I don't want to be offensive to anyone. I don't want to... Like, I want to know if anything that I'm doing is in any way offensive or oppressing or anything like that. So I think we have that like natural understanding within our relationship that like he doesn't want to be married to someone like that. And I don't want to be someone like that. <laughs> so it, yeah, kind of, yeah. it kind of works. <laughs> yeah. And that's so. the thing about that goes back to the deal breakers we were talking about, right? What are the deal breakers? So I am a black woman with a disability. I'm also cisgender heterosexual. So my friends who are within the categorization of LGBTQIA, they have deal breakers regarding me. I have to watch what I say. It's not about offending people because even if people laugh at a joke with you, it doesn't mean that there aren't any implications of what you said. And this is, that's the tokenism, right? Because a lot of times white people will say, well, my black friend thought it was funny or my black friend agrees with that. Or I see black people who love Confederate statues. That's always that tokenism. Like, you know, mm-hmm. like instead of citing that, that person and using them as this symbol, I mean, that's like the equivalent when we're talking about domestic violence and people will say, well, there's some women who like to go back home after being beaten. But like, no, it's, it's, that's not how this is shaped by power. You know, yeah. it's like that. Mm-hmm. There's so much that goes into it. So that's why I tell people you have to have deal breakers. Like my friends with an LGBTIA have deal breakers regarding me. And it's not their job to explain everything. Like if I say or do something that's a deal breaker, they don't have to give me a formal letter <laughs> to yeah. say, well, this is why we're blocking your number. It's 100% my role to dismantle my power and dismantle the power of other cisgender heterosexual people in my family, in my friendships, in communities, in nonprofits where I collaborate. 
in police groups, if I have to be around police people, I mean, like literally everywhere, it's this is that's why I'm anti bias trainings. I can't stand implicit bias trainings mm -hmm. and all that stuff because those are this falsehood that it's about someone being offended mm -hmm. and someone expressing that they are offended. Most things that have harmed people for hundreds of thousands of years, the other person has no idea because yeah. the other person just seemed like they were okay. Because minoritized people always have to pretend that we agree with what we learned in a class. We we pretend that, oh yeah, that police officer giving me a ticket for no reason. Ah, you know, life goes on. I tell people bias trainings are a waste of time and they're done by the two groups that harm us the most, medical and health professionals and police departments. So bias trainings really were effective. The people that kill us and abuse us and fail in advocacy. Wouldn't well, do it. They're, yeah, they're the yeah. ones that do and it doesn't work. So, yep. so that's why I tell people it's about more than just running people's mouths and seeing who's smiling or frowning at any given moment. That's not mm -hmm. how equity works. I love that. Well, thank you so much. We're going to wrap up this episode and I um, I love it. I literally, I think we can talk about this all day, so we will continue, but thank you, Dr. Kimya. And I am very excited to listen to the next two episodes with you on it. Thank you. I'm excited. And remember the next two episodes, we're going to give people examples of what they can be doing to make some more changes yes. beyond having opinions, right? Exactly. We're, we're, we're the, put your money where your mouth is. Well, both. Yeah. You're talking about yeah. eating money. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Either way, food costs money. So that's right. Thank you for listening to the Determined Mom Show. We appreciate you. And we would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This will help us reach as many other moms as we can. Don't forget to download your 10 things you should be doing to get more clients from Google search guide at rebrand.ly forward slash Google 10.